It's my desire that Southeast Asia hears the gospel as well. Uh, what a great little video. I hope you have your Bible. Go ahead and open it up to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I firmly believe that this is God's word, that it is life-giving, and that it has truth. And so I am very excited to get to share with you from it this morning. While you're turning to 1 Chronicles, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in this book. In our Bibles, Chronicles, the book of Chronicles, is divided into two books. So in most English Bibles, you have 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. In the ancient Hebrew Bible, though, these were only one book. And in our Bibles, First and Second Chronicles follow a series of other historical books. And so you'll read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. And First and Second Chronicles tell a lot of the same things that happened in First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, again from a fresh perspective. But in the ancient Hebrew Bible, the book of Chronicles was the very last book in the Bible. Because the book of Chronicles tells the story of God saving his people from the time, it focuses in on the time of King David until the people return from the Babylonian exile with hope and expectation of a coming Messiah. Now, First Chronicles is one of those places where whenever you commit to reading the Bible for the year, where most people quit. So how many of you said, hey, this year I'm going to read through the Bible? Come on, I know some of you did. All right, thank you, ma'am. You're awesome. Uh, the rest of you, you might consider reading through the Bible every day. It's awesome. Uh, try to knock it out in a year. It's very possible. It only takes three or four chapters um, a day. But whenever you get to First Chronicles, a lot of people stop in their tracks because for the first nine chapters, it is nothing but a genealogy. So Adam begat Seth, begat Enosh, and on and on and on for nine chapters. But then in chapter 10, it starts to focus in on the story again, and it focuses in on the story of Saul's death. King Saul, the first king of Israel, it focuses in on his death and the rise of Israel's greatest king, King David. And so chapters 11 to 15 tell how David got the ark of God back from the Philistines, how he conquered Jerusalem, how he brought the ark of God to Jerusalem to fulfill a prophecy in Deuteronomy 12 that you can check out at another time. And once the ark of God was back in Jerusalem, David was overwhelmed with joy and composed a psalm. And so now, by God's grace alone, 3,000 years later, you and I can open up our Bibles and read that very psalm that he wrote. Because it's written for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 8 to 36. Now, we're not going to look at all of those verses this morning. We're just going to look at four verses right in the middle. These, are so, these come in the midst of a psalm of praise. So let me read to us. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 to 26. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now as David realizes the great thing that God has done and he's overwhelmed with the greatness of God and he writes this psalm of worship. As we read through it today, I think that there are four questions that we should ask this text. Four questions that we should ask this text about worship. The first question is this, who should we worship? And notice how clearly the text tells us the answer. Sing to the Lord. Tell of his salvation. Declare his glory. uh, His marvelous works. For great is the Lord. He is to be feared. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So who do we worship? We worship the Lord. We sing to the Lord. Now, in your Bible, most likely, it will capitalize the four letters that spell out the name Lord. And the reason it does that is because the Bible wants you to know that this is not just the generic word for, you know, a master or a Lord or a boss. But this is God's very special covenant name, Yahweh. This is not some praise song to a generic God. This is not something like you might hear at a political event. You know, my son is in Cub Scouts. Yesterday they had their Pinewood Derby. He did good. Came in fourth. I was pretty proud of him. You know, so they had their Pinewood Derby and stuff. But before Cub Scout events usually begin, they'll have a prayer. And it will go something like this. The leader will stand up and he'll say, Please remove any non-religious headwear and pray to the God of your choosing. O God of many names. And it's something really generic, right? Praying to some God who doesn't even exist. But we worship the Lord, the true living God, the only God, the real God. And so in this time, in the time of David, the people were tempted to worship many other gods. And so the Old Testament warns time and time again, do not worship the Baals. Do not worship the Asherah. Our text makes it clear why not. It says, for the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Don't worship them. Avoid them. Stay away to them. Worship the Lord, the God whom you know, the God who drew Abraham from amongst the nations who called him out from the nations and brought him to the land of Canaan. The God who made the heavens, as verse 26 says. The God who, when his people were in bondage in Egypt, brought them out by his power. The God who spoke to them from Mount Sinai. The God who, with his very finger, wrote the Ten Commandments and gave them to Moses. This God, this is the God that you worship. And that's for us today as well. Who do we worship? We worship that God. We worship the Lord, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, 
who came and lived among us and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins and rose from the dead so that we might live forever with him. That God is the one that we worship. Now, there are plenty of people who want to draw us aside and say, well, we all pray to the same God. Just come with us and we'll pray to this God. Pray to Allah. Pray to Brahma. Pray to generic God of many names. But this text makes clear there is one God whom we worship, the Lord. And so it says, sing to the Lord. So who should we worship? The Lord. When should we worship? Notice what it says here in verse 23. We have some time words here. It says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, day to day does not mean occasionally. It doesn't even mean that you set apart a time each day to tell of his salvation. That's what I would like to do. I'm a type A person. And so I use this app on my phone, OmniFocus, and I put everything in there in my to-do list. And I like to check it off. Do we have anybody in here who likes to, you know, to-do lists and check it off? Anybody? Yeah, about half of you. Awesome. So I would love to be able to say, tell of his salvation, check. But that's not really what this means either. Whenever the Bible uses this phrase day by day, it literally means continually. Let me read a couple other passages to bring some clarity to it. You probably know this passage well out of Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, listen to this, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when should you tell of his salvation according to Deuteronomy 6? Well, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you go out of your house, when you come in your house, when you walk along the road, you know, when you're at your job, whenever you're at your school, everywhere, constantly talk of his word and the things that he's done. Another passage that makes this clear is the very first psalm. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So who should we worship? The Lord. When should we worship? Constantly. And if I'm being honest with you right now, my life looks nothing like that. I wish it did. I mean, I have to pray every single morning, Lord, today, let me look for opportunities to tell of your salvation. Let me make opportunities to tell of your salvation. Because I want my life to look like this so that I am telling of his salvation constantly. So who do we worship? The Lord. When should we worship? Constantly. And then the third question we need to ask is how should we worship? Notice what our passage says. There are four, ver- four verbs that are used there. It says, sing to the Lord, tell of his salvation, declare his glory, for he is to be feared. So verse 23, sing to the Lord. 
Songs are so powerful. I know for certain that come Wednesday, if I were to see you on the street and I were to come up to you and say, hey, so what'd you think of that sermon on Sunday? Do you remember the points? You wouldn't remember any of this. That's okay. I understand. But if I were to say, hey, do you remember that song that we sang? You would know it. You would be humming the melody. And since you know the melody, you'll remember the words. Songs are absolutely powerful. I've got a great illustration of this. My three-year-old son recently has had a song stuck in his head. Okay? So right before Christmas, we were listening to KLTY, Caleb, you know, all the Christmas channels. And there was this one Christmas song that would come on that my wife hates. Okay? It's the Paul McCartney, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. You know that one? She hates it, right? And so being the loving family that we are, whenever it would come on the radio, we would sing it at the top of our lungs, right? And we would do it over and over and over every time it came on the radio. Well, that got it stuck in my three-year-old's head. And so after Christmas was over, he just changed the holiday. We're simply having a wonderful New Year's time. After New Year's, it's my mom's birthday. We're simply having a wonderful Mimi's birthday because that song is absolutely stuck in his head. Songs are powerful. And so the content of our songs is essential. What we put in our ears, what comes out of our mouth in praise is essential. And notice what our passage says. Sing to the Lord. Tell of his salvation. The word for tell just means, in the Hebrew, just means simply to share good news. I know that every single one of you are experts at sharing good news. And the reason I know this is I've been on this little website called Facebook. You share news constantly. Hey, I woke up. (laughs) Hey, I had breakfast. Hey, I'm going to church. You know, I mean, you just, you share everything. And you spread that news rapidly. I mean, there are people, maybe some of you, who, if you're going to go out to a restaurant, you check in with open table. You post on Facebook what restaurant you're going to. You take a picture of your food and you post it on Instagram. And then afterward, you write a review on Yelp. There are people that do this. And we spread because of our connected society. And the way that we are all connected with social media, we spread news more quickly and more extensively than any culture in the history of the world. We saw many news stories over the last two years about how the spreading of news was changed by Twitter. We spread news by nature. So are we spreading the best news possible? Are we telling of his salvation It says, for the third way that we should worship, declare, in verse 24, declare his glory. Now, in the Hebrew, declare is a different word than tell. The word for declare means more to announce, to make a proclamation for anybody who's willing to hear. This is similar to like a newspaper headline. So if you were here in Dallas on Monday and you picked up a newspaper, a local newspaper, it surely had a picture of Des Bryant on the front. If you remember, 
Des Bryant, there was a pass to him at the end of the game, and he took three clear steps with two hands. He pulled the football into his body, one football move. Then he reached out and extended another two football moves to clearly catch the ball. But that was the news. And so the Dallas Morning News proclaimed that news by putting a picture of Dez on the front and saying, was it a catch? Whenever the situation in Paris happened, if you went to a news website, there would be a headline announcing the terror in Paris, in Paris, and announcing the news a day later that the terrorists had been killed. That's what is meant by an announcement. Do your words, does your life, do your commitments announce that there is a king of kings and he is not in Washington? And that has nothing to do with whether or not you like the current president. But there is a king of kings to whom every president and every prime minister and every king will bow. Are you declaring his glory? And finally, it says that he is to be feared. Do you fear the Lord? I read a great article about two weeks ago now on a website called Desiring God, and it was talking about the two types of fears. It said that there's one type of fear, which is that emotional feeling that we get whenever we're out of control. So maybe it's on a small-scale event, like you're on a roller coaster, and you don't know what's going to happen, and you're freaking out. That's one type of fear. Or maybe on an even larger-scale event, like maybe you lose your job and you're out of control, and you're not sure of your job prospects. That's one type of fear. But the other type of fear, the type of fear that this is talking about, is only in reference to our relationship with God. It's the fear that arises whenever we realize how majestic and mighty and glorious and powerful God is, and how at any moment He could consume us, and he would be perfectly just and good to do it. Now, whenever you realize that, the immensity of who God is, the power of of which God has, that power, whenever you realize that despite his immensity, he still stepped down and became a human and lived among us, and bore our sin on the cross, and rose from the grave so that we might have eternity with him, whenever you realize that type of fear, you realize the depths of his mercy, the extent of his love. That's a healthy type of fear. So we're to sing to the Lord, we're to tell and to declare his salvation, his wondrous works, and we're supposed to fear him. So now we see who we worship, when we worship, how we should worship. My final question is where should we worship? And if you've been following everything I've said, you would think that the obvious answer is everywhere. We worship wherever we're at. But let's go back to our passage. Look at verse 24. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. I think that it's far too easy for us to worship God right here. We're all about that, and that's a great thing. And so the text specifies among the nations, among all peoples. Whether you like that people or not, 
whether that nation causes you to fear or it's a place that you want to go among all nations and all peoples. This command is found throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So Genesis 12, verse 3, God promises Abraham, he says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's right there at the beginning. And it's also right there at the end. In Revelation chapter 7, as the people are before the throne worshiping the Lamb, it says that their multitude is made up of people of every tribe and tongue and language. I've been to about 30 different countries in my life. I've seen countless cultures. I've heard hundreds of languages. It's hard for me to grasp in my mind what it would look like for people from every tribe and tongue and language to worship him. But his word promises that they will. And so I know for certain that right now, in the most war-torn areas controlled by ISIS, that there will be people from that area who will be worshiping before the throne. That in the most remote village where today there is no gospel witness, where God's word has not been yet translated into their language, that on that day, there will be people from that village, from that tribe, worshiping before the throne. Because God has a majestic plan to get the gospel to them, to redeem a people for himself from among every tribe and nation. So notice how these ideas, these four questions logically progress. We see who God is, the Lord, the one who made the heavens. And we can't help but want to worship him constantly through singing and telling and declaring and fearing him and doing it among the nations taking it wherever it needs to go, making whatever sacrifice is necessary to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. At this point, I want to tell you a little bit about our story, uh, which is just one little, little part of God's big story of reaching the nations. In 2005, my wife and I had been married for about four years. Uh, our son was about a month old at the time, and God put a desire on our heart to go to the Peranakan of Malaysia. And so, after a long talk one night, in the middle of the night, uh, my wife and I sent an email to the International Mission Board that said, we think God is calling us to go to Malaysia. How do we get there? Kyle. That was it. And they wrote back the next day, and they said, if God is truly calling you to go to Malaysia, then we are going to prepare you and equip you and send you. And so, over the next year and a half, We went through a long application process, and we went through training, and we sold off all of our stuff, our house up in Frisco, I mean, everything. We just got rid of it to go, right? And at the end of 2006, we moved to China to study Mandarin Chinese, and eventually we were able to move down to Malaysia. Now, I hadn't studied missiology or any of that, you know, the study of missions in seminary, Uh, I love the Old Testament, so I studied the Old Testament while while I was in seminary. And so we didn't have this complex strategy of, okay, here's exactly what you do whenever you hit the ground. We had had some training. Thankfully, the IMB always trains the people that they send. 
We had had some training, but whenever we got on the ground, our strategy was pretty simple. Let's get to know these people. So we moved into a city of about 600,000 people, under 1% Christian, where there wasn't another church within miles of where we lived. And we moved into a neighborhood, uh, because my wife is a godly woman and picked out this neighborhood just knowing that this is where God wanted us to live. We, we moved into a neighborhood where there was an altar to an idol on every door. And we moved in, and we started just doing everything we could to meet people. We would have barbecues, uh, block parties. I didn't say this in the early service. My wife even had line dancing. It was awesome, right? Like just teaching all these Malaysians how to line dance. Uh, we, would, we, we had a kids group on Saturday mornings where she would invite just local mothers and their kids to come over. And we just tried to meet people. And by God's grace, we met this other couple who also, they were a Malaysian couple, but they had a heart for reaching our neighborhood as well. And so we started meeting with them and having a Bible study. And we started inviting neighbors, unbelievers, friends, whoever, you know, just to come to the Bible study, going chapter by chapter, week through week, through the book of Hebrews. And God began to work. And he started to work in people's lives. And we actually saw some people get saved, and I was able to baptize some people. And then as this Bible study grew... The vision that God had put in my heart came to fruition whenever the people in the group said, you know, we should start a church. Of course, I had wanted to start a church from the beginning. That's why we went there. But now we had the people in the group saying, we should start a church. And so I said, okay, so what do we need to do? And they said, I don't know. And so I said, well, here we go. And we started digging through scripture to find out what is a church supposed to look like? What does the church do when it gets together? What does the structure of the church look like? All those things. And so we started meeting together for worship in our living room, which is awesome. I don't know. If, I don't, I, you've probably never had the experience of, you know, having worship service in your living room, but it's great. So we would come downstairs in our pajamas, and we'd sit around the table, and we'd eat breakfast, and then it would be like, okay, time for church. Let's move the furniture. And so we'd move everything, and we'd put a projector up on the wall, and we had the, uh, this godly brother who would lead worship each week, and I would preach. Sometimes it would be the other way around, and he would preach, and I would lead worship. And God formed a church. And God grew the church, and eventually it grew out of our living room. And since we lived in Malaysia, you can't just go out and start up a church. You can't just go buy some ground and say, let's build a building, let's start a building campaign, you know. You can't do that. It's a Muslim country. You're not allowed to start new churches. Well, thankfully, a lady in our church who was a pediatrician was able to rent a shop lot behind us on the second floor of a shopping center kind of area behind us. And we started meeting up there. And we couldn't, you know, do the standard things that you might do, put out flyers, hey, our church is launching on this date. We couldn't do that. That was against the law. But we could meet people. As people shared their needs, we could say, hey, you know, well, we get together a couple times each week to study out of God's book. We'd love for you to come hear what God has to say. And God grew the church. And people got saved and baptized in obedience to him. And today, I mean, I got a text this morning. I got a text this morning from a lady in the church who was asking me to just pray 
Because now they are, I mean, literally standing room only, crammed in this shop lot, praying that they can find a new place to worship because they've outgrown where they're at. They worship together every week under a Peronicon pastor. And so this neighborhood where there was no gospel witness for as far back as we know, now has a church, now has people who just a few hours ago met together to sing to the Lord, to tell of his salvation, to declare his glory, to fear him. That's our story. But I would be remiss at this point if I didn't ask you, what's your story? How do you fit within this grand plan that God has to reach the nations? I recently heard the president of the International Mission Board, David Platt, just a couple weeks ago, he asked a question that really penetrated to my heart. He said this. He said, considering the fact that we live in the most prosperous, the most technologically advanced country in the history of the world, if God were to come to you and he were to ask, how far did you take the gospel with the vast resources I gave you, what would you say? And it cut me to the heart. What would I be able to say? What would you be able to say to God? The International Mission Board for many years has had a tagline that says, pray, give, go. I ask that this morning, that you will be an enabler of missions to the ends of the earth in obedience to what texts like 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 26 say. I hope that you are at least in one of these ways, daily worshiping the Lord through praying. I hope that you have specific missionaries whom you know who are standing on the front lines, who are daily giving their lives literally putting their lives on the line so that people will hear the gospel for the first time. I hope that daily you are praying for people like this. I hope that you have a people group or a nation whom the Lord has put on your heart and you will not be settled until they are worshiping the Lord. Pray. Give. Today you have a great opportunity to give to the Lottie Moon Offering. I know that there are lots of missions organizations. There are all sorts of them right here in Collin County. But I also know that the International Mission Board is extremely strategic. That it is still the largest missions organization in the world. And because of its resources, its size, and its strategy, it is able to put people in the most dangerous places where many other missions organizations can't even get close. Whenever China reopened up about 20 years ago, after the church had grown rapidly, they immediately came to the International Mission Board and said, we remember from whenever you were here in the 1940s. Please train us. Prepare us. The IMB is doing great things around the world. And you have an opportunity to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering today to help provide for missionaries on the ground. Every single penny that you give goes directly to the field. 
The administrative costs are paid for through other cooperative giving. But every penny that you give to the Lottie Moon offering goes directly to the field. So I ask that you pray. I ask that you give. And I ask that you go. And I'm looking at you, youth, in particular. I'm looking at all of you, but I'm really looking at the youth. I know that there are people in here who today are called to go to the nations, who are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I pray that if God has put that on your heart, that you will not be content with anything else, that you will be obedient to that call to go to the nations, and that if you are somebody who is called to stay here and to serve here, whenever your child or your brother or your friend comes to you and says, hey, I'm called to go to Somalia, I'm called to go to Syria, I'm called to go to India, that you don't look at them and say, yeah, but aren't there a lot of lost people here? Praise God that we live in one of the most Christian-saturated areas of the world. And so as I look out this morning, I see a few hundred people who are called to reach people here. Let's be enablers of those who are called to reach people there. And so whenever they come to us and they say that, let's say we will follow God in obedience to support you and to pray for you and to send you. And if you're that person who is called to go, may you be willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary, whether you're 10 years old or you're 85 years old. I shared with the first service this morning In Malaysia, one of the obstacles that I faced was that I was too young. They wouldn't listen to wisdom from God from somebody who was under the age of 60. We need older people to go to the nations just as much as we need 18 and 19-year-olds who are willing to put their lives on the line. But we do it because we want the Lord to be praised among every people and tribe and nation around the globe. In a moment, Paul's going to come up and lead us in worship. As he does, I ask that you take a few moments to just think through what is God calling me to do? Is God placing a people or missionaries on my heart to pray for? If you need missionaries to pray for, Talk to me. I will give you some people that would love to know that you were praying for them every day. Is the Lord calling me to give more than I thought I was going to give, more than I think that I can afford to give to the Lottie Moon offering? Is God calling me to go or to enable someone else to go to the ends of the earth? Let's pray together and consider that. Father, you are the most holy God. As our passage says, you're great and greatly to be praised. And we are to declare your glory among the nations, among all the peoples. Father, I pray for every person in here who, if they are a believer in Christ, are called to go to the nations to teach and to baptize. If they are a believer in Christ, that they are called to pray or to give or to go. Father, I just ask that you will make it clear on their hearts this morning what it is that you want them to do and that they will step forward in obedience, knowing that any sacrifice they make 
does not compare to the reward of knowing you and knowing that the nations will praise you. That any sacrifice does not compare to the sacrifice that you made to save them and to redeem them. And so, Father, we take up our cross and we follow after you wherever you call us to go. Lord, may you be praised to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.